Hello, welcome to Desert Island Books, a podcast about reading. I'm your host and resident librarian, Natalie Mason from the City of Melbourne Libraries. Joining me is a special guest who will share their top three all-time favourite books. Peggy Frew is a Melbourne writer and musician. Peggy's debut novel, House of Sticks, won the 2010 Victorian Premier's Unpublished Manuscript Award and went on to be published in 2011. Her second novel, Hope Farm, was published in 2015 and shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award and the Stella Prize in 2016. Peggy's third novel, Islands, was published in 2019. Peggy formed the indie rock band Art of Fighting in 1995. She plays bass and sings. The band's debut album, Wires, won the 2001 ARIA Award for the Best Alternative Release. Back with their first album in 12 years, Art of Fighting have just released Luna Low. I am deeply in love with the song that Peggy sings called The Digger and the Dragger. It is a delight. I encourage you to uh, have a listen to that. Perhaps I can sing it to you, Peggy, if you would like. Welcome to your desert island. Thank you, Natalie. It's so nice to be here. I probably won't sing to you, though. If oh, you can. I mean, I can't get away. We're on an island, right? This is true. <laughs> Perhaps you could sing to me. <laughs> no, no. All right, we'll work it out. There'll be some singing before the day is done. Um, I'm thrilled to have you here. You bring together two of my great loves, music and books. And while reading your book choices, I listened to very different albums. They, uh, the books evoked different kind of musical experiences for me and I am a um, headphones on and read on the tram kind of person. So I kind of have the music on just to drown out the general ambience of other people um, and to kind of help me focus on my reading. So I will talk to you about music as well as books if you I, I'm so interested to hear about this because I um, don't. I don't combine music and reading unless there just happens to be music on in the background, which is a, a possibility. But um, And I never, ever listen to music while I'm writing either, which I've heard some people do. Um, so it is, it's an interesting... Uh, kind of thing to consider because it's it yeah it adds a whole other element doesn't it yeah it does it really does it added to my enjoyment of each of the three books Mm. I have to say Um, and there's a twist for one of them as well are you ready all right right. okay can't wait let's go could you please reveal the title and author of book one Book one is a novel called The Mint Lawn by Australian author Gillian Mears. Now tell me how this one made your list. I, look, I just think it had to be there because I think it's probably one of the most important books in my life and my kind of, um, the story of me as a writer. Um, So maybe I'll just tell you about the sort of context in which I first came on the book. So I was a, a miserable teenager living in, in Melbourne and um, my mum, um, who incidentally has been in a book club for over 40 years now with the same people. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so they had a bit of a tradition of going to Adelaide Writers Week, the book club, and she went off and she, I think she saw Gillian Mears speaking and she brought this book back for me and gave mm. it to me. Um, and I read it in my cold bedroom in Melbourne during a Melbourne winter and was just transported to this uh, this kind of warm, watery 
um, world of the northern um, rivers of the rivers of northern New South Wales, which is, I mean, I think the I don't think the town's named in the book, but it's set in Grafton, I yeah, think, which is the, where yeah. he grew up. I've got the word jacaranda in my head associated mm. with either the ha- the name of the house or the name of the town mm. or something, but yeah, Grafton has a yeah, jacaranda association. That's right, mm. um, and I mean, I think I just fell in love with the book. For, for for what it is, um, for the writing and the um, the kind of art of it, but but I also think, and this probably wasn't conscious at the time, but I think it's a very important book to me now because I think what it showed me was that a no- you can write a novel that is absolutely literary, um, that is about domestic lives. You know, it's just it's just about a family, and really, it's I think about a relationship between a mother and a daughter. Mm. Um, so you know, there's no um, wars, there's no kind of major political intrigue, there's no minor political intrigue. It's it is just a book about um, ordinary lives of people. But of course, there's so much that comes with that. Um, and I suppose I just I was very young, like I think I was 15. It just had not occurred to me that good art could be about an ordinary life. Yeah. Um, and so I think that somewhere deep in my subconscious, the thought must have lodged that this was something that I could do as a writer. So it's such an important book to me. Um, and I have reread it a number of times over the years. And I did reread it just um, in the last six months. And I was a little bit, I was clutching my pearls this time around just going, there is so much sex in this book. There is a lot of love and sex when they're different in this book too. Yeah. Um, And it's, yeah, I don't remember really noticing that the first time around, which is interesting because I was a teenager and obviously it was probably on my mind a lot. But um, I love that we... I, I, the main character never ages in a sense that we can go back to a book like this, we can read it when we're 15, we can read it when we're 40 and she stays 25. Mm. And when we're 15 we think, wow, that's what 25 is. And then you're 40, you're like, what? That's what 25 was? <laughs> I know, but do you know what? This is kind of not really talking about books anymore. It's a confession about myself. I have a real problem with age. Like I don't notice people's ages mm. and I don't think of myself as the age that I am. I sort of feel like I've been the same person my whole life. Well, that's true though. So, uh, I, have, have I have been the that same person, but in that, in that um, I sort of felt old as a child right. and now as an adult, I kind of don't feel the age that I should be. I either feel older or younger and I'm very bad at judging other people's ages. And so it's really funny. I don't, people often, t- people often talk about returning to a book as an older person and looking at the character and going, oh, God, they seem so immature to me now or, you know, I have a different perspective on them. And in some ways I can, that can happen, but I have to really think to, mm. to, to have that perspective. Um, so when I go back to Clementine, who's the, the main character in The Mint Lawn, I just feel in her company in the same way that I did as mm. a 15-year-old. Um, yeah, it's it's... I mean, I guess that just really speaks to the fact that every book is different depending on who reads it and that's Absolutely. the way that I experience books. You know, I think I'm a... I, I've, I've really come to realise that tone and mood come before almost anything else for me as a reader and 
that sort of doesn't really change no. on your, depending on your life experience. So I just fall into the world of this book in the same way that I did. Um, and like I said before, it's it's really lush and it's just, oh, it's just, it's a very moist book. There's a lot of moisture. There's <laughs> <laughs> heaps of water, so much water. There's rivers, there's sweat, there's body fluids galore. There's a lot of, a lot of sort of people swimming and bathing and hmm. drinking. Um, yeah. She's she's a very sens- sensual writer. Is that a good term for it? Yeah, I think so. Mm. I do. And her characters are so real um, and so d- deeply unhappy. Mm. Um, and I felt when I read this, and I read this for the first time, so thank you for bringing me this book, um, I, felt, I felt Clementine's unhappiness, like it was palpable, like it was, and it didn't, it didn't, hinder my enjoyment of the book. You can read a book and someone's unhappy and you're like, oh, come on, get it together. But there was something about her her questioning herself, her the decisions she's made in her life and the choices that face her um, in, about her future um, and kind of watching her work through that was actually, it felt quite positive even though she was very kind of languid a little it, bit well, about it, her life. It lands in a positive place yeah. you know where, where the book kind of ends you know she's going to get away from that husband and um but I, I do remember reading uh, an interview with Gillian Mears about this book and possibly the one that came after which I think was called The Grass Sister where she said that she was really interested in the passivity of women and girls in rural Australia and I think that yeah it's almost like the the feeling of the book replicates that. It's a very languid book, you know, and this character is just so stuck. She mm. just can't kind of lever herself out of this very passive existence that she has had her whole life as a child. And But she does in the end. And it is, there is so much, because it's also a book about grief, so it's about mm. the loss of, the, of Clementine's mother and the sort of enormous shadow that, that both the mother's death and just the mother as a, as a, per, as a person and their relationship leaves yeah. in, in Clementine's life as she moves into her own adult life. Um, so there's a lot of grief but, but it just abounds with life as yeah. a book. Like it's not, it's not a downer. I don't find it a downer. I no. find it really beautiful and, and I actually think that um, Mears has something in common with Helen Garner in that um, uh, she... She embraces the ugliness of life, but the, but she can't help noticing the beauty as well. You know, she's just yeah. a real observer. It's a leverage of that hope. Mm. So you, you, I read it and was kind of overcome with the, with the deep unhappiness. But there was, it, it always sort of still felt hopeful. There was wit and humour mm. and, um, and then there was the sort of sibling bonds, which, you know, were as strong as they could be and the niece. Is there a niece? Yes, there's a little. I can't remember. There's her name. a couple She's of adorable. children mm, or um, a child. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, there's kind of future and hope, and you know, families continue despite the loss of the mm. matriarch, like a huge component of their lives. But um, th- it always, always kept coming back to. But there's something more for Clementine. Like I'm here with her as she's working through it, and there's something more for her. I feel like it. 
Yeah. And that husband, oh, my gosh, one of the best written unlikable characters I've ever read. I know. Wasn't he just awful? Hugh. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the book opens with him sobbing, Mm. just absolutely unable to form a sentence and he's much older than her and Mm. she's 25 going, Mm. dear, dear, and she reaches out to touch his leg to give him some comfort and even that kind of repels her. She's like, oh, I can't touch him. Come on, get it together. That opening scene, I always think of that as well when I think about one of the things that I really admire in her writing and that I would love to attempt myself, which is that she has this remarkable, I don't know how conscious this was and I guess we'll never know now because she's not around anymore, but... um. This ability to somehow use imagery, she sort of embeds the emotions of her characters in the details of the imagery. So in that opening scene where he's crying and she's just noticing all of the the, the ugliness of his crying, you know, she sees, I think she sort of sees the inside of his mouth as he, he's yes. sobbing and, and that's yes. sort of, I think that's kind of like a, a bit of a, Oh God, it's going to sound like I'm obsessed with sex and the sex of the book, but that that's the theme throughout in her relationship with him is that she finds him repulsive. She, yet she has to be really close to him all the time because yes. he wants to have sex with her. And, but he's pushing the plunger down on a plunger. This is so said in the 80s, plunger of coffee. And there's just this sort of image of these watery coffee, coffee grounds being sort of pressed down by the, the, the presser of the plunger. And it just seems like there's so much in that to do with emotions, to do with tears and the way that emotions are contained or not and the sort of squashing of things. Flattening and, down. Yeah, and yeah. she just does it again and again with details that are, um, it's never overdone um, and it is just so, it's such a, a wonderful um, way of evoking the emotional states of the characters through landscape really, I suppose, and yeah. setting, yeah. Very much about place and and the domestic. We, we're talking about mm. coffee plungers and mm. there's, there's a lot a of s- kitchens, school desk, in that book. kitchens. Yeah. There's cups of tea and there's yeah. the porch and the river and all of that. So it's all very familiar, very Australian, mm. I guess, in that sense too. Yeah, but I still almost think that to write a book that is really about the relationships between women, which kind of is what it is, and also to write a book that's about a woman's sexuality that is completely from within her, from her viewpoint, that, my God, I hope my stomach didn't, my stomach just <laughs> gurgled. I hope it's that didn't talking. get into the microphone. Everybody's talking. It's all the food. I'm thinking about all of, there's a lot of food in this um, book as well. Um, uh, to, oh, I've lost my train of thought now. What was I saying? About... Well, I'm, my comment was it's very Australian, but I think your comment was going to be that it's a much broader, um, much broader. Than no, that. no, I think I was just going to say that I feel like it's actually, you still don't often get books about women's sexuality that, that, that don't somehow, I don't know, perhaps feel there's not, she, she clearly doesn't feel obliged to give some sort of false empowerment to Clementine. Like she really is able to sit with someone who is having an extremely disappointing experience of of her sex life and her sort of beginning of an adult identity and what Mm. her sexuality is in that, you know. Like she's just sort of, she has been so passive that she's just got sort of snapped up by this guy that was her music teacher. I mean, it's so um, 
disappointing. That's the word that just keeps coming to mind. But it's more than that because, you know, she's actually having a really terrible time. And, yeah, we're not really selling this book, are we? She does, she does rise and get out <laughs> by the end. But, but it's the journey. It's not, about the, it's not about that it has a happy ending. It's about how she comes to terms with herself, how she finds her strength, mm. how she processes her grief, how mm. she, um, you know, works with the sibling bonds that she had. That sibling stuff was kind of really struck chords with me. I really liked the way that that was written so different to my experience of mm. siblings. So I, I, I enjoyed that, um, you know, the way those relationships were so supportive and yet so standoffish at yes. this, exactly the same time. Yeah, three sisters, great, great sort of combo Yeah, in a book. Yeah. Well... Mm. Um, and are you going to tell me what you were listening to? When oh, the Mint Lawn. Yes, I was listening to your album. I was oh. listening to Luna Lowe. <laughs> oh, how interesting. Wow, that's so funny because I just think of, when I think of Art of Fighting, I think of like, I don't know, rainy nights in a city. Very different, very I urban. Feel, I feel like your albums from 20 years ago <laughs> gave me that vibe and, and kind of put me in that place. But this album feels incredibly uplifting. And actually it's got that that whole cover art is what we ended up calling Queensland Gothic, which is sort of very... Stunning. Yeah, speaks to Gillian Mears. It definitely. does. It's very mm. purple, mm. very, very purple. Did you paint that? Uh, Ollie, Ollie the Ollie singer yep. um, made it on a computer, I think. We can still call it painting. Yeah. It's modern painting. I think he did drawings first. It oh, looks very hand-sketched hand to, yeah. be, to be mm. fair. It's stunning. It's beautiful. Mm. Absolutely beautiful art, artwork. But there's, and then we also have the music teacher. So we have a bit of music in yeah, this book. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of music in this book. We do. But um, there's more music to come. Mm. So without further ado, shall we progress to yes. um, book two? Could you please reveal the title and author for me? <laughs> Book number two, Natalie, is another novel. It's called Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rhys. I'm just clutching hugging it. it. I am hugging it because <laughs> this book brought me joy. Could you please talk about the joy that it's brought you? Oh, I I just think this is one of the most extraordinary books ever written. Was it the first time you have you read it before? Yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. 1966. So this was it's published. Absolutely yep. a Penguin classic. Yes. Um, I think Jean Rhys was, how old was she when it was published? She was, well, she was born in the late She was born in 1890. So she was. So 66 plus 10, 76. Isn't that amazing? 76. Were you still be writing novels at 76? God, I hope so. And I hope that I write one as good as this, but I I think I'd be lucky to. Um, I think... But I, but it's not like she wrote it. She'd been writing it for 40 years. I feel like mm. she'd been writing it her whole life. Yes, that's right. It this was is the... one of those things that gets under your skin and yeah. you're like, I'm going to write about this one day. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to give us a bit of context okay. about it? So Wide Sargasso Sea is, it's, oh, I hate using terms like this, but it's, it actually kind of is a prequel to Jane Eyre, mm-hmm. which really sells it very short for what it is in that, it's actually really nothing to do with Jane Eyre particularly, apart from the fact that what Jean Rhys did was took the character of the first Mrs Rochester, the mad wife in the attic, and, and wrote her story of what her life was uh, pretty much up to and including arriving at um, Mr Rochester's house. And so it... So, 
you kind of know that, don't you, when you're reading it? I mean, Absolutely. that's one of those, it's not like it, it hides its um I think the story of the secret. story kind of yeah. precedes it. Yeah. That's right. But um, it's very removed from Jane Eyre because it's a book, it really is a book about um, colonialism in the um, West Indies. Yeah. And it's set, so Jane Reese, Jane Reese was born in Dominica, what was then called Dominica, in the late 1800s. And so she, and she sets this book, um, I think it's in the, when is it set? I think it says here on the back. In the 1830s. So um, what about, my maths is so bad about, um, well, when she was writing it, you know, she she was writing it, I think she started writing it when she was in her 40s. So she's setting it, you know, 100 odd years um, earlier. Um, And I guess 70 odd years before her time of of living in that um, part of the world and growing up and being born there. So it's really about... um, it's set when when it is set, and she set it in Jamaica, which I find that kind of interesting that she didn't really use her own yeah um, place of birth, and I don't really know why she does that. But the the characters do go to a different island, and I think that's meant to be Dominica, right? Okay, um, but that's that all sort sense. of shrouded. But mm. so basically, it's the story of this character Antoinette, who um, is the a lot like like Jane Reese is the daughter of. Um, an English or I think Jane Reese's own father was from Wales, but, you know, a, a British um, father and a, and a Creole mother. And Creole seems to be a very flexible term, but I think in this context what it refers to is a white-skinned person but who was born on the island, Dominica, whichever island yeah. it was, Dominica or um, Jamaica. And so it's this book that is really, race is really central to this book. Everyone's obsessed with what colour someone's skin is, what who, what, what race they belong are. to, yeah. and it and it matters even between the different peoples on the different islands because there's just there's all, there's just these layers and layers of colonialism. You know, there's like the French influence and the British influence, and and slavery has only recently been abolished in the um, West Indies when this book's set, and so there's all kinds of stuff going on with. Um, the politics to do with that, to do with these huge plantations that had slaves on them and then, you know, how the the, um, the owners of those plantations who are European or English find themselves suddenly down on their luck. And mm. that's what happens to Antoinette and her mother. And then she basically gets sort of, um, well, the whole her whole life falls apart because of that. And then she kind of gets married to ends up getting married to Mr Rochester in again it's again it's another story about a, a a girl who just really has no control over her life and ends up in this marriage that she didn't choose yeah there's a lot of similarities in a very different context but yeah, yeah. Uh, and then so you know she ends up getting shipped off to England in the end and and um being locked up in his house and then setting everything on fire in the most incredible final scene um it's not, it's actually not, I think one of the things that I love so much about this book and why I would take it on a desert island is that I feel like I can read it again and again and get more out of every, out of it every time because it's not easy. No, you know, she doesn't make it easy for you. No. Did you think? Yeah, I did. It's in three parts and mm. you've kind of got three focuses along the way. I think what I would benefit from a reread is that, that relationship between Antoinette and Mr Rochester when they are first married is sort of quite 
curious. They're curious about each other. They don't know mm. each other very much. As you say, they've kind of been married off. Their families mm. have kind of seen a, f- seen a fortune or seen a benefit in the two mm. of these people joining in un- what ends up to be unholy yes, matrimony. But right. um, that, so And then so they're curious about each other and they're adults and they're learning more about each other. And then and they, seem, they do have a genuine kind of physical attraction, which is pretty do. lucky. Very lucky. <laughs> For them. Very lucky. But that relationship degenerates to the point of, you know, violence and Mm. madness. Mm. Um, And then when they finally arrive in England, she's essentially locked up and not Mm. able to socialise with anyone else. She has a keeper, a grace Mm -hmm. pool, looks after her, who ends up being a character in Jane Eyre as well. But the... There, there is a, there is a, you know, a long part between the first encounter and the first blush of potential love, and then the madness and hatred mm. and vitriol that mm. they have for each other, and that's sort of really the the kernel of the book, isn't it? But that's the interesting part, and I feel like I could read that part mm. again and again, mm. and just where does it turn? Where's the bit? What's mm. the phrase? There's a lot of rum and there's yep. other people involved and there's a bit of, you know, there's the, the hint of the witchcraft, Obia, yeah. yes, and and there's betrayal and then there's, you know, does he make her mad or does she go mad? Can you make someone mad? Like, I, have all, I still have all these oh, questions after having so read it. It's so well done and, and there are moments where you feel you can sense that they could almost have turned it around, even, yeah. even almost really quite close to the end he'll say something like, if she smiles at me, maybe I'll yes. You know, I'll take her hand or whatever. That's I'm I'm not doing the book service. It's much better written than that. But this sense that, and I think that's what one of the many things that this book is about is that they are these kind of pawns in the game of colonialism, mm. and they they just oh, don't yeah. stand a chance because what no. sends her mad is actually deep, deep generations deep trauma and. Yep. Um, he's he's just this kind of hapless. Like I think I think he gets his father wants him to marry her because he's a bit of a disappointing son back yes. in England, and yes. the father just sort of wants to send him off to the West Indies to kind of get keep him busy somewhere else. I think so. They're just these people that are just exploited, and yeah, it's it is actually a deeply nihilistic book in a lot of ways. <laughs> But, but there's the same themes of grief. I mean, mm, Antoinette, oh. you could argue some of her madness, some of the reasons that she snaps was because of the way her mother, um, you know, her mother went, did you, would you say her mother kind of dissolved from grief? Absolutely, because of the, of her the child, yeah, the other the brother, the sibling, yeah, the yeah. younger brother. Yeah, yep. and in a dramatic <clears throat> fire again. Mm. Um, so you've got these kind of repeated themes. Mm. You've got intergenerational trauma. You've got all of this. But I feel like a kind word, Antoinette, may have just stayed on an even keel with some yeah. love and support and positivity. Well, she's she just does not fit anywhere. She's no, not. She doesn't. she doesn't fit in the world of the white people. She doesn't fit in the world of the black people. She's, you know, she's got this deep, deep connection with this fabulous character, Christophine, yes. who's sort of... I actually, I reckon that even after reading this book so many times, I'm not actually that clear on whether Christophine is is sort of still essentially a slave to the family or whether she does get paid or what yeah. she's hanging around for. There, there are some complicated relationships mm. in which um, some of the staff who have worked for Antoinette's family for generations and then their children have worked for mm. them, et cetera, now that the slavery has been, slavery has been abolished, they still 
live in the house and prepare meals for the family, but it's unclear about whether they're doing it on their own terms or whether what they get for it or whether that's just their living situation. Yeah, because they've they've been living with that family for generations. More fallout from colonialism, essentially. Exactly. But this character, did you like Christophine? I thought she. I think she's just. I thought she was feisty. Oh, she's awesome. So she doesn't really fit either because she's a Martinique woman living in Jamaica, and I just love how there's this connection between Antoinette. Excuse me, and Christophine, where neither of them really fit. Everybody's suspicious of them. And there's this deep love because Christophine has essentially brought Antoinette up. Family. But they can never, there's at the same time, they will never be, things will always divide them. And I feel, I feel like, one of the things that I love so much about this book is, and again, it's I suppose it's that that sort of what I was mentioning before about um, Gillian Mears's kind of compressing these emotions or you know somehow imbuing them into her landscape and her setting. This book is so complicated, mm. and everything that you're told almost immediately after there, there's some you're sort of told you're told something's the truth. And then in the next line you're told, well, actually, maybe that's not the truth. Exactly. There's this sort of qualifying going on all the time and it just replicates the lack of clarity that happens when there's a great big mess, like people enslaving other people or moving into another um, country and, yeah, taking over and the loss of um, culture and the sort of... And it, but, but it's not lost. It's corrupted and everything mm. gets very murky. And Yeah, corruption's sh- the right word mm. because I, I feel like they've, in that relationship, they've kind of corrupted each other in the kind of broader societal sense. Yep. Everyone's been corrupted by, by all of the kind of societal changes. Yeah. But then within, even within a really messy, corrupt, corrupted sort of, reality, there is beauty, there is love, mm. there's closeness, there's proximity. You know, these people are all with one another. Yeah, they're walking distance to each other. Yeah. They're not really getting on the bus and disappearing. Yeah, it's so... Proximity is the right word. Mm. It's almost suffocating in some ways because oh, yeah. the cast is small. Yes. Right? The people around you is a small group. Yeah. I wonder if it's been performed as a stage play because it's... I would think so. It would make an amazing play, I yeah. think. Do you want me to read a little bit from the beginning yes, I to would. just sort of because I feel like it it evokes the um, like I said the, the claustrophobic sort of cluttered sense and how nothing is clear. <laughs> um, this is just the very start of the novel. They say when trouble comes, close ranks, and so the white people did, but we were not in their ranks. The Jamaican ladies had never approved of my mother. Because she pretty, like pretty self, Christophine said. So that's the first paragraph. And there's just already so much going on. There's, so we're told that whoever's speaking to us and their mother are not white. They don't get to be in the ranks of the white people. But then the Jamaican ladies don't approve of the mother either. And then who's Christophine? So within the, within the first three, what, like it's five, three, four lines... We've already got all these characters are introduced. Yeah, I just love it. I love that she didn't make it easy for the reader. I just think um, oh, I admire Jean Reese so much. I'd love to uh, go back in time and spend some time with her. I imagine she was extremely difficult. <laughs> 
But what a mind. What an mm. imagination. And would you like to know what I was listening yes, to? Yes, I would love to. I was listening to the fantastic jazz harp of Dorothy Ashby. Oh, my goodness. What does that sound like? It's remarkably wonderful. Oh, it's gorgeous. I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah, she's got a, quite a few albums, mostly um, instrumentals. Mm-hmm. Shall we delve into book number three? Could yes. you please reveal the title and author of book three? Okay, book number three is, should we call it a novel or a novella? Let's call it a novel. Okay. It's another it's novel yep. and it's called The Children's Bark by Helen Garner. Had you read this one before? No. I, if, it's, if it's even, I thought there can't be a Garner I haven't read. Turns out the context of it is everything. Mm. Um, it's her third novel, 1984. It's of its time. Mm. Um, but she just nails people. Oh, my oh, goodness. God, doesn't she ever? Yes. And I feel like with this book, Possibly almost more than any of her other ones, there is a palpable sense of enjoyment Mm. coming from the author behind. Mm. Like you can just feel how much pleasure she gets in using words. I I really love it. Like I I think that I've kind of moved into very much reading this book from a craft, you know, almost analysing it now because I've read it so many times and the first handful of times would have been just going into the story and reading it as for, for my own pleasure as a, as a fiction reader. But now I reckon I just look at it through my magnifying glass from a writer's point of view and oh, she's just, she's a master. Can't believe how good. I was going to read a little, shall I read a little tiny bit yeah, where she please. just, her, yeah, she just nails a character. Okay, so there are, the characters in this, so the book, so the book's set in the in Melbourne in the eighties, mid eighties, and there are two sisters, um, Elizabeth, who's a sort of career woman, and Vicky, and Vicky comes to live in Melbourne with Elizabeth, but it soon becomes abundantly clear that Elizabeth just isn't the maternal type and isn't really going to provide a home for a, a essentially teenager. still a child. Yeah. And so Vicky ends up going and living with Dexter and Athena, who are, Dexter was an old university friend of Elizabeth's, the older sister. And and it's essentially about a generational difference, isn't mm. it? Yeah, Dexter it is. represents a sort of almost pre-feminist world um, and Athena is kind of, who's probably the most interesting character in the book, I think, by far. Yeah, who's who's really living the life of a housewife. And she sort of is confronted by these by Vicky and Elizabeth who sort of present to her what is possible in the world and then we see what happens between those four really. Mm. Yeah. But I just um so this is a conversation um between Athena, Elizabeth and Vicky and they are talking about Elizabeth and Vicky's mother. She must have been a nice woman, said Athena. I don't know if nice is quite the word, said Elizabeth. She was the sort of person who'd put on Ravel's bolero first thing in the morning and she had a voice like somebody falling off a mountain. (laughs) Shut up, Elizabeth, said Vicky. She was nice. She was. Just because you didn't. She used to like ironing, said Elizabeth. The easy stuff, you know, tablecloths, hankies. I just... A whole... 
person is just summed up and it's done through dialogue. I yeah. mean, she's it's just... Really, really clever. Yeah. Really clever. I've had conversations like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I wish I, I wish I was... I could do that in my speech. I feel like I'm such a slow articulator and I'm a very slow writer, so I wish I could do that in speech. Instead, I have to try and replicate it on the page and try and give it that sort of sense of spontaneity and trueness that that Helen Garner is so good at. Mm. Are you seeing the same themes in all three books now that we've talked about all of them? Yeah, so we've got, well, we've got novels written by women. Yes. Um, one published in the 1960s, but I think probably written, Much you know, earlier. from the 40s. Yeah. And then two two set in the 1980s mostly, um, although The Mint Lawn was published in the early 90s. So I meant more about mm. the central women yeah. In each of those books, we've got Clementine, Antoinette, and Athena, mm. and each of them are deeply unhappy for different reasons. <laughs> each of them are married with varying levels of dissatisfaction. Mm. Each of them are exploring their own sexuality and who they are and what they want for their future. And I love, yeah. I love reading about women. Like I, I think that was the the one thing that kind of it was just like fireworks going off in my head that I picked up the next book and I was like, Peggy, what have you done? This is amazing. Did you know? Did you know? Yeah, you're right. And no, then, I didn't know. And having but... read two of your three novels, I see very similarly drawn women that are just fascinating to spend time with, absolutely flawed and confused and exploring and trying to, you know, find their strength and confidence in themselves and in their relationships Mm. and with the world around them. And there's also Mm. the theme of music that goes through all three, which I deeply love. There's also a theme of infidelity, I've just realised. Yes. Which, yeah, so they're all, all of the central characters in these three books, each of the central characters, are women who do, they do unlikable things, don't they? Yet, searched, yet in their search for happiness, in their pursuit yeah. of happiness. Yeah, but almost we're championing them. Like we want them to find yep. happiness yes. no matter how they find it. Yeah, Regardless right. of the path that they take. Well, I don't know if happiness, do you think it's happiness or is it just finding themselves? Or you know, yeah. just being, finding out who they are. Yeah. Like there's a fantastic bit in um, The Children's Bark where one of the two younger women, I can't remember if it's Elizabeth or Vicky, says to Athena, who's the sort of housewife character, why don't you wear makeup, Athena? Athena? And um, before she can answer, her husband Dexter says, Athena doesn't need that rubbish or something. Mm-hmm. And then Athena says, I don't know how to put it on. Yeah. And, it, yeah, she just is this person who is spoken for. Um, yeah, and then she... She does go and have this affair with a musician and there's a fantastic little... Because this book is so Melbourne, that's the other thing I think yes. we have to talk about. Is, yep. I mean, I strangely, it, it brings up an enormous sense of nostalgia for me and it reminds me of living in group houses in the sort of Melbourne's inner north when I first moved out of home. But that wasn't during the 1980s. That was like 10 years later. Mm. But it's still... There's a lot of um, hot, dry winds blowing down, sort of dusty inner city streets in this in these um, 
in the children's park and in a lot of Helen Dunn's Bluestone laneways. Yeah. yeah. And she just, she evokes it and she evokes it with such love. You know, she, she really is, she's a bon vivant, I think, Helen Garner. She Mm. loves life. She loves the details of life, you know. Um, and, and it doesn't, I mean, it sort of does really belong to the 80s in the, in the, in the gender politics, what's going on with that and the way that people are living their lives and the, the music and the fashion and mm. things like that. But I still feel like when I go to Sydney, the way that she describes Sydney, I, I can still see that city is like that and same with Melbourne, mm. you know. Yeah. Um, Peggy, will you tell me what you're reading now? Oh, okay. I actually am just only because I came across it in a bizarre pop-up, um, cheap discount bookshop near near where I live. Um, I'm rereading *Beloved* by Toni Morrison. Mm. I I had lost my copy and I saw it in that bookshop and I thought, it's you know a good time. She just recently died and um, it's actually been a really good book to to kind of anchor myself with and use as a reference for where I'm at with my own work at the moment because mm. um, there's some things structurally that she does in that book that were very useful for me to kind of look at, but um, I'd forgotten how extraordinary that book is. Yeah, that's what I'm reading right now. And then I, my bedside table pile is reaching, you know, OH&S danger red light flashing levels, <laughs> but I think the next one underneath that in the pile is... Um, Late in the Day by Tessa Hadley. Mm. I have not oh, read any yeah. of her yet, but I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, with the books that you've chosen, I wonder, do you, um, you talked about loaning um, the, the Mint Lawn and Wide Sagasso Sea, I think. Do you mm. gift books to people? Yeah. Um, yeah, I often do. Um, certainly I'm really pro that if any of my kids have to give a friend something at a birthday party, we always just go to the bookshop. Um, yeah, and so I'm one of five children, but I'm from sort of two different batches. So I have two full siblings and two half siblings. And so the the two half ones have only sort of recently become adults. And when they both turned 18, um, the three, me and my brother and sister from the first, my dad's, our dad's first marriage, all got together and we each made a list of our most important books. I think we were allowed to choose. It was a really, it was, it ended up being a lot of books. I think we chose something like six or seven books each. And then we bought all those books and packed them in a box and gave them to the the little sisters when they became adults. And wow, you gifted a library. Yeah, because we just thought, you know, you're, these are the books that we would like you, we, we, we're giving you these to accompany you as you step out into your adult life. Yeah, because they meant a lot to us. And, yeah, it was really interesting to see what everyone chose. What a beautiful thing to share. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was great. Yeah. So, yeah, I do. I, I think books are – I love them. I just can't imagine a world without them. And do you ever listen to audiobooks? Very, very rarely. Um, we do as a family if we go on a road trip. So yep. um, uh, our, the youngest child in our family at the moment is 10. Um and the the most successful ones, um, I mean, we've done various ones. 
The most successful ones were the His Dark Materials trilogy, where it was just like everyone from the oldest member of the family right down to the 10-year-old were just so enthralled that no one spoke. This was a, a road trip to Sydney and back. And, you know, if we pulled up or something, everyone would go, stop the audiobook, don't, I don't want to miss, you know, don't, <laughs> I don't want to get out of the car before I stop playing. And so that was really fantastic. And the other one that we did recently was um, not the best known of Roald Dahl's, but it's a book called, I think, The Wonderful World of Henry Sugar. That's yeah. six short, short stories, stories that I think he did really did write for sort of like it's more of early a... adolescents. Like they're yeah. not children, no. but they're not adult stories either, although yeah. they can be totally appreciated by an adult. Yeah, yeah, so they were really great. I think they were marketed to adults when they first came out. Smart, smart collection. Absolutely yeah. smart collection. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a really good audiobook recorded with a great reader is just such a delight and um, that is the ideal scenario, I think, is a car full of people and when you when you hit yeah. the right note and everyone's into it, it, it just adds this whole extra dimension to the, the family holiday. Yeah. But so by myself, no, I don't okay. listen to audiobooks. I try and read. Mm. Mm. Do you have a favourite time of day to read? I read every night before going to sleep. Um and that's pretty much it unless I'm, you know, trying to use something as a reference or preparing for something, you know. Um, but then over the summer I read all day every day and just honestly I read while I'm walking around and I, sometimes I try and read while I'm cooking, which yep. doesn't work very well and I wouldn't recommend that. Depends what you're cooking. You <laughs> bung something in the slow cooker that's technically still cooking for the six to eight hours. You can sit down and read. I've even figured out how to read and knit at the same time because I do a bit you, of knitting. What's propping the book up? I need to know. Um, yeah, I tend to have to sort of pin it down with something. Um, pin it flat to the table? Yeah, like upright. maybe with another heavier book across yep. the bottom. Yep. Um, and it's, it's a, you know, essentially I'm doing what they say people are doing when they think they're multitasking, which is that I'm knitting a bit, then reading a bit, then knitting a bit, then reading a bit. <laughs> I'm actually just switching back and forth and it can be make me feel a bit dizzy. But um, I've often thought of getting one of those, you know, those cookbook stands yeah. with the perspex that go over the top that hold the book open so I can crochet and read yeah, at the yeah. same time. It gets, I think it gets easier if you're doing, you know, it's, I, I lose count though. Yes, I can't, you can't, it's got to be when you're in an automatic phase. Count. Yeah. yeah no, if I'm trying to never. count rows or stitches, I can't do it. Yeah. No. But I can listen to music while I'm reading. Yeah. I find that really bizarre. So what did you listen to with the, the children's the book? Um, Joni Mitchell's oh. um, Ladies of the Canyon. Oh. It was all that plonking piano yeah, just sort of yeah, yeah. fit perfectly. Yeah. She writes about music really well, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. One? Ghana absolutely yeah. does. And this is a very music heavy book. Yeah, it is. Um, well, I could talk to you all day. Mm. Yes, <laughs> me too. But we're going to run out of reel-to-reel yes. tape on the island. Yep. We only brought a certain <laughs> amount with me. It's really heavy, that um, tape. Yeah, quarter-inch, one-inch yep. tape. Maybe we're going 24 tracks. Anyhow, it's been a joy, an absolute joy and a delight to chat to you today. Peggy, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining us on our desert island. You can read this episode's show notes, including a list of all the books we've discussed. That'll be on our Goodreads page, and you can find that via our website at www.melbournelibraryservice.com.au. Just look for the read page. I'd also love to hear about your desert island books. You can tweet at melblibrary with the hashtag desert island books. Let me know the books you simply cannot live without. You can download previous episodes of Desert Island Books in your favourite podcast app at SoundCloud, iTunes. Simply search for Melbourne Library Library service. Happy reading.